Any press is good press, so the saying goes. Mae West knew that better than anyone. Not only was she an actress who wrote her own starring roles, her plays were so risque that she got slapped with criminal charges. There was an upside to being labeled obscene, terrific publicity. But as censors gained more power in the U.S., May found herself waging a constant war to be one thing, herself. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Mae West as she became a playwright and star. We explored the evolution of her persona and how she battled obscenity charges over her scandalous script and performance. This week, we'll look at the way May capitalized on the publicity around her arrest and how she turned that into a wildly successful Broadway career. Then, we'll follow her move to Hollywood and her battle with the same type of censorship, only on a much bigger scale. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. On February 21, 1927, police officers raided Daly's 63rd Street Theater, where a play called Sex was enjoying a sold-out run. They wanted to close down the show and put its 34-year-old author and star, Mae West, behind bars. The charge? Obscenity. It was the era of prohibition, and the moral reformists were out in full force. The cops marched her outside and forced her into the back of a paddy wagon. The tabloid press was already on the scene, and they were having a field day. 
It wasn't every day a show closed for being, well, offensive. Camera bulbs flashed and reporters shouted questions as the car took off for the station. May was indignant. She couldn't believe the police had actually arrested her. But she swore that no matter what they threatened her with, she wouldn't close the show. When she got to the station, the authorities gave her a choice. End the show and walk away, or face trial. It wasn't even a question. May posted bail and said she'd see them in court. Her decision was part practical, part principled. She believed she had a right to say whatever she wanted in her plays. That was the definition of free speech, after all. But beyond that, May knew her arrest was great publicity, and a trial would give her even more. Sex had become popular mostly because it got bad reviews and was deemed too racy for the stage. And now that she was facing criminal charges for writing it, everyone would want to see what all the fuss was about. She was right. While she awaited a court date, sex ran for one more month, and every performance was sold out. It finally closed in March 1927, after nearly a full year on Broadway. A month later, on April 19, 1927, 34-year-old May strutted into court. She was dressed to the nines in a fur coat and a big hat, and she spoke to the judge with the same voice she used on stage, dripping with attitude and innuendo. The prosecution accused May of writing and performing obscene and immoral material. The defense argued that she had a right to free speech, but in the end, the all-male jury sided with the prosecution. May was guilty. The judge then offered May a choice. She could pay a fine of $500 and be done with the entire thing, or she could pay nothing and do 10 days in the workhouse. She chose the workhouse. It wasn't about the money. May could have easily paid the fine. She wanted to make a point. If lawmakers and city officials wanted to send a woman to jail for her artistic expression, then so be it. She'd take one for the team. Of course, May wasn't a normal criminal by anyone's standards. From the moment the judge sentenced her, she received special privileges, starting with her transportation. May tried to hire a limousine to drive her to the institution on Roosevelt Island so her fans could watch her procession, but no one was around to change the rules for her, so she settled for a solo ride in the wagon. Once there, her privileges only continued. In a famous showdown with the warden, she refused to wear the prison underwear, saying she preferred her usual silk undergarments. It didn't take him long to acquiesce. He also assigned May a private room, gave her work in his residence, and would take her out on evenings with him and his wife. Even the other inmates went out of their way to welcome her. She was a star in their midst, and they were thrilled to get the chance to meet her. So while May was in jail, she wasn't really doing hard time, but she later said that the experience changed her, that it made her appreciate her own life that much more. She vowed that after her release, she would do something to better the lives of the women inside. She soon got her chance. 
When May was released, she agreed to an exclusive interview with Liberty Magazine about her experience. The publication paid her $1,000, which would be about $15,000 today. May donated all of it to start a library for the female prisoners. But while May's donation was significant, it was the full extent of her contribution to the cause. While the warden asked her to come back and visit the inmates to boost morale, May never got around to doing that. Before we continue with May's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Virtue signaling wasn't a term yet in 1927, but this was exactly what May was doing. It occurs when a person feels that one virtuous act allows them to then act less than virtuously. In May's case, her donation made her feel that she'd done the right thing and that she was excused from doing more. It makes sense that May's mind worked this way. For her entire adult life, she'd been called immoral, so she had to defend her morality, at least to herself. And for her, one donation was all it took to feel like she'd done enough to help the female inmates. It didn't matter to her whether other people, like the warden, thought she should have done more. At the end of the day, she had to look after herself first and foremost. After all, nothing in the world was as important to May as her career. And that career kept moving at a brisk pace. She eventually came up with her next play, Diamond Lil, which debuted on April 9, 1928. Like her previous piece, Diamond Lil was also about sex, but May treated the subject matter in a more sophisticated way this time. The play was set in the 1890s, and the lead character wasn't a sex worker, but the mistress of a powerful man. It explored the same themes of female sexuality, pleasure, and power. But its glamorous costumes and veneer of elegance attracted a more mainstream audience than sex had. Also, May was hilarious. In fact, it was this role that created the persona that she's known for today, a sexy, strong, ahead-of-her-time woman, unafraid to poke a little fun at herself and make people laugh. Diamond Lil was a hit. And 35-year-old May was so popular that she decided to jumpstart her next project, The Pleasure Man. This was a reworking of a play that May wrote called The Drag, a comedy about a closeted gay man. The original play wasn't successful. Theatergoers shunned it due to its gay lead, gay cast, and scenes with drag queens. This time, May was determined to get it to Broadway. She changed the lead role to a straight man and the story into a murder mystery. But she peppered it with many of the same characters and scenes from the drag, including a drag ball. May's use of this subject matter is admittedly complicated. On one hand, she was one of only a handful of straight writers writing about the world of drag queens and the lives of gay men. So it was an incredible opportunity to increase visibility for gay artists and stories. But May wasn't approaching this material as an activist. She was writing it to stand out. Years earlier, May took the shimmy from black dancers and used the move to further her own career what we would call cultural appropriation today. Now, with her plays The Drag and The Pleasure Man, she borrowed from gay culture to make a name for herself. 
But in this case, it got her a little too much attention. When The Pleasure Man opened on Broadway on October 1, 1928, May was still performing Diamond Lil across town. She'd heard rumors that city officials were unhappy with the play, but she assumed that the changes she made to the lead character and the story would put their concerns to rest. She was wrong. Police raided the show on opening night and arrested 60 cast members. When May heard what had happened, she raced to the police station and bailed out every performer. But she wasn't too worried. She figured the cops had made their statement and the scandal would turn into publicity and profits. A few nights later, the pleasure man opened for the second time. The police raided that performance too. May bailed out her cast members again, but this time the city planned to prosecute her and the rest of the actors for indecency. This meant possible jail time for everyone. May didn't mind taking the fall, but she refused to jeopardize her cast. Reluctantly, she closed the show. They never made it to a third performance. But May didn't have much time to fret over the pleasure man's untimely demise, because her mother, Matilda, had received some disturbing news. Matilda had liver cancer. Her diagnosis was terminal, but at Matilda's request, May was kept in the dark about this important fact. Matilda didn't want to distract May from her career. Unaware just how bad the cancer was, May was determined to help her mother beat it. She was convinced they could do it through the power of positive thinking. So she decided to take her mom on outings to make her feel better. And nothing made May feel better than going shopping. Matilda was thrilled by the idea, but when the day came, she couldn't manage to get herself out the door. So May went to all of her mother's favorite stores, tried on dresses and picked out the ones her mom might like best. She bought two of everything, one for her mom to wear right away while she was frail, and one for when she recovered and was back to her normal weight. When she got home, May presented her mom with her finds. As Matilda carefully tried on each dress, May felt a surge of hope. She believed that if her mother had enough new clothes to look forward to wearing, it would bring her back to health. But the cancer progressed until finally, May's father told her that her mom was about to die. May received the news in the middle of a performance and after the curtain closed, she rushed home to be with her mother. Matilda passed away on January 26, 1930, at age 56. May felt as if her entire world had just crumbled. She was hysterical, crying every minute of every day. It was so bad that she almost quit performing altogether. Without her mother, her best friend and biggest supporter, she just didn't see the point. Little did she know, her career was far from over. In fact, her next great success was right around the corner. Up next, a heartbroken May takes Hollywood by storm and makes history to boot. 
Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous, or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye, or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain. You ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. For actress and playwright Mae West, the late 1920s were busy and painful years. She fought obscenity charges for her first Broadway play, became a bona fide star with her follow-up, Diamond Lil, and then faced even more heat for her gay-themed The Pleasure Man. Police raids forced the play to close after only two Broadway performances. As if that weren't bad enough, May's mother Matilda died in early 1930. Understandably, May was devastated and considered stopping acting and writing for good. But then May thought about what her mom would say if she quit. Matilda's entire life had been about supporting May's career, and May couldn't just throw it away now. That would be like letting her mother die a second time. Little by little, May learned to live with her grief. To distract herself, she buried herself in work and started writing books. She published her first one, Babe Gordon, at the end of 1930, and adapted it into a Broadway play the following year. Then, in 1932, she published the novelization of Diamond Lil. Slowly, May set her sights on a new goal, something bigger than a hit play, the movies. During the last few years, silent films had turned into talkies, and with that, May's interest in films had grown. She felt that her talents could finally be put to use on the big screen. But May wanted Hollywood to come to her. She didn't want to go begging a studio for a deal. It turned out she didn't need to. Paramount Studios came calling in 1932. It was on the verge of bankruptcy and in desperate need of something or someone to turn things around. They approached May for a long-term contract. This was how all the studios worked at the time. 
Each one owned a star who they could loan out at will. But 39-year-old May didn't like that idea. She didn't want to be the property of a studio, just like she didn't want to be the property of a man. She negotiated with Paramount for a short-term contract, and they agreed. May was thrilled. Paramount brought May out to Hollywood and put her up in an apartment building near the studio. They told her that they were just polishing the script for her first picture, night after night, and she'd get it in no time at all. But soon, she realized that wasn't quite the truth. The script wasn't even finished. Paramount had signed May, knowing that she wouldn't be able to work right away. They simply didn't want her going to a rival studio. May was incensed. She threatened to pack up and leave right then. She didn't care about the money. She just wanted to work. But her lawyer and manager, Jim Timoney, encouraged her to wait it out. May listened. Kind of. She agreed to stay in Los Angeles, but demanded that the studio send her the script and let her fix it. She told them she could get it done quickly, and then they could all move on to shooting the thing. They handed over the draft with the stipulation that she could only change her part. She agreed, and then saw how small her part actually was. So May rewrote her lines to ensure she made a big splash. This script revision led to one of May's most iconic film moments. In her very first scene in Night After Night, May's character, Maudie Triplett, walks into a nightclub. It was May West all the way, from the rolling strut to the diamonds on every finger. Another character exclaims, goodness, what beautiful diamonds. And May, in her deep, seductive voice, replies, goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. At the movie's 1932 premiere, the line landed just as May had intended. The audience roared with laughter. Everyone loved May's performance in Night After Night. So much so that Paramount offered May a longer-term contract and a chance to adapt Diamond Lil into a film. And of course, this time, May would star. For most actresses, that would have been more than enough, but not for May. She wanted to write the script, control the costume design, and get paid handsomely. Paramount head Adolf Zukor gave her script and costume control. Then it came time to discuss her salary. He asked her how much she wanted. She asked him how much he made in a year. When he told her, May said, I want a dollar more. And she got it. The deal wasn't just unheard of, it was revolutionary. Never before had an actress had so much control over her own image or been paid so much. And up to now, May had made only one Hollywood movie, but she knew exactly how much she was worth. When it comes to negotiating, studies have shown women to be less successful than men. There are a variety of societal and psychological reasons for this, but a recent study by researcher Elaine Hong found that things change when power comes into play. In Hong's study, whether or not a man felt he had power made no difference in the outcome of his negotiations. But the opposite was true with women. 
If a woman felt she had power, she fared so much better at negotiation that any sort of gender gap completely disappeared. Because May had more social power than the average woman in the 1930s, she felt entitled to more. This gave her the confidence to ask for more. In doing so, she got what she wanted and shattered all sorts of gender assumptions and stereotypes in the process. May got to work writing the screenplay for Diamond Lil and searched for her leading man. There was no shortage of actors around town, but May West wouldn't settle for just anyone. She needed the perfect co-star. One afternoon on the Paramount lot, May reportedly caught sight of a young man walking down the street. She stopped dead in her tracks. He was the most beautiful man she had ever seen. Not her type exactly. May preferred muscle men over pretty-faced actors, but she knew this man was exactly the type to light up the screen. She turned to her companion and asked who he was. Her friend told her his name, Cary Grant. Grant had only done a few small pictures, but May didn't care about any of that, nor did she care that he was 11 years younger than her, an age gap that was usually flipped in men's favor. All she knew was that she wanted to cast him, and no one said no to May West. Diamond Lil was renamed to She Done Him Wrong and premiered in February 1933. And it was everything May had dreamed of her first starring picture role. The film was a staggering commercial success. It had only a budget of $200,000, but it made $2.2 million at the box office. Today, that would be nearly $45 million. It was just what the struggling studio needed. Only four months later, Paramount was back in the black. With that film, May became a true Hollywood star, and her leading man, Cary Grant, became one as well. They were so popular together that they starred in another movie later that year. May West wrote that one too, called I'm No Angel. She played a lion tamer who sues her ex-fiance for breaking off their engagement. The film was a hit with women who loved seeing May play a likable, smart, and independent woman who was beautifully dressed, even while taming lions. And Cary Grant was pretty easy on the eyes as well. But not everyone loved Mae West. Her double entendres and sexual innuendos were drawing the attention of the censors who were gaining traction in Hollywood. Joseph Ignatius Breen was one of them. As the head of the Hollywood censorship division and a dutiful Catholic, he saw it as his responsibility to police the film industry's morality. As far as he was concerned, there was far too much violence and immorality in pictures, and it was affecting the children of America. That included a worrying trend he and others had seen in movies lately, unabashed female sexuality. It seemed to be everywhere, Marlena Dietrich kissed another woman in the 1930 film Morocco. Jean Harlow played a social climbing woman who uses sex to get to the top in Red-Headed Woman. But by 1934, the actress who surpassed them all was Mae West. 
Other movies might have had a few scenes that bothered the moral reformers, but May's scripts had risque jokes on every page. Plus, her lead characters were always fallen women who never seemed to learn a moral lesson. It drove the moral reformists crazy. After much back and forth with the studios, the censors finally won. In July of 1934, the Production Code Administration opened its doors. The administration's sole purpose was to regulate movie content. And while Hollywood bigwigs weren't thrilled with this development, it was better than the alternative, federal oversight. Under the new production code, also known as the Hayes Code, studios had to submit their scripts in advance. The Hayes office would mark it up with any changes they deemed necessary, and then they'd trade script revisions back and forth with the studio. They fought over every cut or alteration until the Hayes office gave their final approval. And when a script got final approval, it couldn't be changed. May had a hard time getting much by the censors. She started to put things in the script that would embarrass even her, just so they wouldn't notice the lines she actually wanted to keep. It was a slow and subjective process, and often May would be censored for things that other actresses could get away with, just because she was May West. At last, her success proved to be something of a liability. By this time, 41-year-old May was the highest paid actress in the U.S. In fact, the only other American making more money than her was William Randolph Hearst. But that just made her an even bigger target. The censors had made her public enemy number one, and they were determined to bring her down. Up next, May battles the censorship office. Now, back to the story. Mae West hit the Hollywood scene with a bang, endearing herself to a public that was absolutely ravenous for more of her. But not everyone loved her big personality or her unbridled sexuality. Moral reformists were set on regulating the movie industry and stars like May that they deemed immoral. With the creation of the Production Code Administration in 1934, everything changed. May's first film under the new code was a mess. She and the censors fought over everything, starting with the title. It was originally called It Ain't No Sin. But after the censors made a fuss, Paramount eventually settled on a new and sleepier title, Belle of the 90s. The film was finally approved to be shot, but after production, it faced even more censorship. During the editing process, the Hayes office decided the film needed a new ending. They wanted to see that the immoral woman had learned a lesson and seen the error of her ways. So Paramount brought May and her co-star in to film a new ending, where her character got married. The censors were appeased, but audiences were confused. The ending made no sense in the context of the movie's story. Not only that, it was awful for May's image. She wasn't a woman who got married, not in real life and not on screen. At least, that's what May wanted everyone to think. For years now, her estranged husband, Frank Wallace, had kept their marriage a secret. 
But in 1935, a month before her new film was released, a bomb dropped. Mae West was a married woman. Frank had spilled the truth to the press. He was strapped for cash, and the revelation was the only thing he had to sell. At first, May denied it. She tried to argue that there were other May Wests, and surely this was all a mix-up. But then, the press found the marriage record with her parents' details on it, and there was no way for May to wiggle her way out. She had no choice but to admit to the marriage. She called it a childish mistake and tried to push it behind her, as if she could will it out of existence. But the damage was already done. The Mae West character and the real Mae West were one and the same by this point, and her entire persona was built around the idea that she was not bound to any one man. If the real Mae West was married, then what did that mean for the character she played on screen? 42-year-old May tried to repair her reputation, but it had already suffered a blow. Between the censors whitewashing her performances and the revelation of her secret marriage, May seemed poised for a fall. Desperate to maintain her career, May decided to go in the completely opposite direction. For her next film, she would show that she could be inoffensive. In Klondike Annie, she played a woman who had seen the error of her ways and had become a missionary. But that didn't land well with audiences either. No one bought that Mae West had found religion, and no one asked for that either. The allure of Mae West was that she was a fun, bad girl. The good girl version was far less entertaining. May did two more films with Paramount Studios, but her star was fading. When her contract expired, they decided not to renew her. That opened the door for Universal Studios to approach her in 1940. They wanted 47-year-old May to star in My Little Chickadee with W.C. Fields. She agreed, hoping that the film might be the comeback she needed. The movie itself was successful and remains one of May's more well-known films, but she struggled in the role and felt out of place. After all, she was nearly 50 and was still playing the same character. Where other actresses could disappear into different characters, May couldn't play anyone but May West. She was trapped in the persona she had created. And now that she was getting old, at least by Hollywood standards, she didn't know where she fit. There was no way she was going to play someone's mother or, God forbid, grandmother. So after one more lousy film, May decided to change things up once again. This time, she went to Las Vegas. Doing a Vegas act was like vaudeville all over again. But this time, as she sang and told jokes, all around her stood oiled-up muscle men wearing barely anything. May had seen endless acts for men, full of near-naked women, but now she wanted to give something to the ladies. The men in her act were all former Mr. Universes or bodybuilding champions, and according to May, fought over her constantly. One day at a press conference, two of them got into a fight. One insulted May behind her back, and another bodybuilder, Paul Novak, came to May's defense. 
Paul punched the other muscle man, beating him up until he was on the ground and someone called an ambulance. Soon after, 61-year-old May and 31-year-old Paul became romantic partners. He was utterly devoted to her. As far as he was concerned, he was placed on Earth to take care of her. But he never sought out the spotlight. He was content to stand at her side, and she loved him for that. They were happy together and lived as a couple in May's home in Santa Monica for years. But domestic bliss wasn't enough to keep May from working for good. In 1970, 77-year-old May returned to the silver screen to co-star in Myra Breckenridge, a film that ended up being something of a cult classic. She played exactly the same character she had always played. That inspired her to produce her final film eight years later. In 1978, at 85, May starred in Sextet, a movie based on one of her earlier plays. In the film, she plays a woman with six different husbands, played by actors like Tony Curtis, George Hamilton, Timothy Dalton, and Ringo Starr, all at least 30 years her junior. It's a campy movie by pretty much anyone's standards, but it was also May's last jab against social norms. She didn't care that she was 85. She was still going to celebrate her sexuality. This went against the grain of how people believed a woman her age should act. In a study on the depiction of the elderly in film, researcher Torbjorn Biltgard found that elderly sexual women are depicted as comical, out of place, or even dangerous. That's because audiences have a hard time understanding why an elderly woman even needs sex. It's deemed unnatural. But May believed that what we see on the screen should be a reflection of reality. As an 85-year-old woman, she was still a sexual being who enjoyed the companionship of younger men. And so she forged ahead with the film. It didn't matter to her that what she was doing was seen as provocative. She was just doing what she had always done, depicting female sexuality the only way she knew how. Sextet was May's final film. In 1980, two years after its release, 87-year-old May passed away. Some people looked back on her career and saw an accomplished woman who changed the world forever. Others saw an exaggerated, campy performer who was fun to parody. But May never cared what anyone thought. One way or another, she knew that she had accomplished what she had set out to do with her life. As she famously said, you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. May West did it right. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Mae West, amongst the many sources we used, we found She Always Knew How, Mae West, a personal biography by Charlotte Chandler, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Mike Ramos. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns. With writing assistance by Joel Callen. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to follow Superstitions for new episodes featuring our most unusual beliefs. Are they side effects of ancient folklore or truly the masters of our fates? Look closely and examine the writing on the wall. Superstitions airs every Wednesday, free on Spotify. 